Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Is it still freezing out there? Uh, what is going on? It's like May, right? Like any colder, I can't wear sandals, and, and that's like unacceptable in May. Uh, that's like why I live in Southern California, right? So I uh, want to welcome you today. Uh, my name is Michael, one of the pastors, and want to welcome you here in our worship center. If you're over in the Ridge, uh, welcome you today. But we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. So inside the program is a green and white message note sheet. Encourage you to take that out. And if you guys are all set, ready to go, I'm going to jump in. You guys ready to go? God, we're just excited to be here and to continue this journey with you as we uh, go back in time to kind of recapture some new images of, of who you were, Jesus, and what it looks like to follow you. And so today, I pray you continue this uh, process that we're in of stripping off old, uh, old images, old filters, help us to catch an unfiltered view of who you are and what it means to follow you. We pray in your name, amen. Well, our story starts today not in a cold place like here, but in a hot place. In fact, uh, it's a desert, it's a resort city, it's a place where a lot of people go when they're sick to heal, and that's exactly why he is here. He's, uh, he's gone through a lot, his doctors have done all they knew what to do, he's moved on from traditional treatments to kind of alternative treatments, and he's still not getting better, and so they've recommended he comes down to this place as hopefully kind of a last step to, in his healing, and he's been down this road many times before. He's been sick before, but never like this time. Uh, this time it just keeps getting worse and worse. In fact, if you were to see him, his stomach is distended. Um, he is having a hard time breathing. When he sits up, he can hardly breathe. If you look at his ankles, they are tremendously swollen. Uh, his breath is rancid. And uh, when he first came down, he thought he might beat this thing. But as time goes on, he's realizing he's not going to win. And uh, his life is slowly ebbing out of him. And so as he lays there on his bed, he realizes the end is close at hand. And so he calls in his sister, he calls in his brother-in-law, he begins to put his final affairs in order, and he calls him in, he gives him very specific instructions, one final order, one final order that on his death, this is to be carried out, and it's absolutely terrifying. Well, today, we are continuing this series that we've been in now for, I think it's about six weeks, that's called Unfiltered capturing a truer image of Jesus. And, and for those of you who are brand new, special welcome to you. This is really a series about Jesus. And uh, the core concept in this series is that, uh, that most historians, sociologists, people who study this would agree that Jesus of Nazareth is by far the most influential person in all human history, whether you believe in him or not. Uh, but the, the, the crazy irony is here in our Western culture, with each passing year, we know less and less about who he really was. And so what we're, going, uh, what we're doing in this series is going back to try to get some what I'm calling unfiltered images of who he is, because the reality is, is we all tend to come with Jesus uh, often with images, but also fi often filtered. But the way we were raised, where we were brought up, what we've been taught before, uh, often just the cultural trends of our culture. You see that in our, in our culture right now is we all want to claim Jesus for our cause, right? And so we're trying to go back to the first century and look with some new eyes to some unfiltered images. Um, and, and the way we're doing that is by going back to one of the earliest and most important documents that describes the life and teaching of Jesus, uh, which is called the Gospel According to Matthew, first book in our New Testament. And so if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up and turn them on. We're going to be in chapter 2 today. But before we do that, I, I need to talk to you about a section there in your note sheet called Fulfillment in Two Types. 
And so if you've been here in this series, you know that the claim that Matthew is making is that Jesus of Nazareth, as far-fetched as this would have seemed at the time, that Jesus of Nazareth is actually the great king, the long-promised Messiah of Israel, that's destined not just to rule Israel, but to rule all of creation. And so these opening couple chapters, he's laying out his initial case for this. Um, and so... Um, what he's, what he's doing is, he's, he's, uh, one of the things we've seen is he's claiming that Jesus is the one who's going to fulfill the story of Israel. In the same way that a novel would lead to an end, that Jesus is the one, the key character, who's going to bring the story of Israel and all of creation to its appointed end. He's going to fulfill the story. And, uh, and so when we think of fulfillment uh, as 21st century Christ followers, we think of fulfillment today as 21st century readers we tend to think this in terms of literal fulfillment, right? So we tend, for example, last week we saw an example of a literal fulfillment. According to the prophet Micah in the Old Testament, chapter 5, that just as once upon a time uh, a man named King David was born in a small and insignificant village outside of Jerusalem called Bethlehem, according to Micah, Micah 5, uh, chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2 and so on, he says that one day another great leader will come from the same hometown of Bethlehem, one whose goings forth are from ancient days. And last week we saw how that prophecy was fulfilled, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? So that's, that's an easy type of fulfillment to understand. I would call this first kind a literal fulfillment. Easy, right? The Messiah, we've, you know, the, the, when, when the, the Magi come and they ask, uh, and King Herod says, where will uh, the king of the Jews be born? The religious leaders knew right at the bat, Bethlehem, because this is what it said. Easy, we get that. And as 21st century Christ followers, we tend to see fulfillment in that term, right? in those terms alone. And that's like, Type number one of fulfillment. But there is a second type, and the reason I'm mentioning is because we're going to see three examples of that today, and this kind of fulfillment is much more complex, it's much more uh, multi-sided, it's much more beautiful and deeper and rich once you understand it, and this is the kind of fulfillment that we call typology, all right? So uh, think of the word type, and then but put ology on the end of it, take out the E, okay? Typology, all right? So uh, we've already seen a great example of this in this series. A couple weeks ago, you saw that we, that we hear for this one prophecy that a virgin from Isaiah 7, a virgin will give birth to a, a son, and uh, they, they will call his name Emmanuel from Isaiah 7, right? And so uh, we, on that week, we talked about the presence of God. And if you were here, we talked about how the story of the Bible, in many ways, is a story of the presence. We were created for the presence of God. We lost the presence of God so long ago in the garden. God has pursued us as a race through the nation of Israel. We talked about how when Moses brought the nation of Israel out to Mount Sinai, that God said, you live in tents, I want to live in a tent, remember that? And so uh, build a special tabernacle, and once they built it, the presence of God came, and he filled the, t- the tabernacle, you remember that? And then we saw that later on in their history that Solomon built a temple so God could live and dwell with the nation. And so once they had that finished, the presence of God came. You remember that? And then we saw in John chapter 1 when Messiah came, that in chapter 1 verse 14, John says, the word became flesh and he tabernacled amongst us. You remember that? And then Jesus said, referred to his own body as I am the temple, the new temple. And so what we learn as the story of God unfolds in Scripture, 
that the picture of the tabernacle and the picture of the temple were pictures of a greater reality, of a time when God would come to dwell with us, not in a building, but in a body. Are you with me? So, so in this story of Israel, the tabernacle and the temple were a picture of a greater reality that would be fulfilled in Messiah. Are you following this? You know this? Okay, so uh, that is what we would call a, a fulfillment of type. I'm going to see three examples of that today. Now, as we jump in, we will not have time to go in depth into all three examples because to understand them, they are often very complex. You have to understand the story of his, uh, Israel, the story of multi-layers of Israel and how it comes together in Messiah so what we're going to do is I'm going to do the first one, and when we get there, I'll take time to really go in depth. You can see how it works. The second two, I'm going to have to do a quick flyby just because of time, because there's some things I want to get to at the end, really land the plane, get really practical about how this passage speaks to our life. We won't have that if we spend all time on types, all right? So we'll do first one in depth, second one, fly, second and third flyby. So here we go. So let's set the stage. There in your note sheet, you have a section called... Uh, refugees on the run. And so let's go back to Matthew chapter 2 now, and uh, let's remember where we were last week. In Matthew chapter 2, last week we saw that these magi, highly educated, respected guys, uh, pagan philosophers, magicians, and so on, from probably Babylon, 900 miles away, they make the trip to Israel because they see a sign in the sky, the star, a star in the sky that indicates to them a great king is being born in the land of Israel. And so if you're here last week, you know they make this 900-mile journey. They arrive there. They don't really know exactly where this kid's going to be born, so they go to the capital, which makes sense. That's where a king would be born. When they get there, they ask the king, current king, have you heard? He's freaking out. His name's Herod the Great. Uh, he is uh, uh, terrified, but this is kind of a, a threat to him. A Messiah might be born. And so he says, go to Bethlehem, according to the prophecies, that's where he's supposed to be born. If you find the kid, come back and tell me so I can worship him. Of course, the plan all along is once you identify him, I'll go take him out. Right? So if you were here, that's last week. Now, last week we talked a little bit about King Herod. We said he was an amazing military leader. We saw he was a shrewd political leader. Operator. We know a ton about King Herod, especially from the writings of the ancient Jewish slash historian named Josephus, first century uh, 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 historian. And so we know a lot about him, but one of the things we know, in addition to being a great builder and so on, is he is a megalomaniac. And he is a man who is just, he is self absorbed, his view of himself larger than life. And so we know he was incredibly brutal. And I want to give you just one more example of that before we move on to the story today. This is a story we started the day with. This is the guy who goes down to the desert resort. The resort town is Jericho. It's 18 miles from Jerusalem. Uh, at the time, it was a, a you know, Roman uh, city to a large degree. It had a hippodrome there for the racing of chariots and so on. He had a huge palace there. Uh, this is, by the way, where Zacchaeus was from, chief tax collector. And so uh, anyway, so, so Herod, Herod gets really sick. He's got this major intestinal disease. Josephus writes about it quite a bit. He's got all these crazy symptoms. They're trying all the normal treatments, not working. Do all these alternative ones like soaking his body in hot oil. Uh, and they're trying to figure this thing out. So he goes down to Jericho. But the, as he's down, he's not getting better. He realizes he's going to die. And 
And he's about 70 years old now, which is about when this account takes place here in Matthew 2. 2. He's about 70 years old. He realizes he's going to die. And it starts to dawn on him that when he dies, no one's going to miss him. In fact, when he dies, the nation's going to throw a party. If anyone's, if ever, they might be crying, but like pretending, right? Like you don't want to celebrate too big that Rome's guy is dead. So, uh, but anyway, he realizes, and he's really bummed because he's a megalomaniac. The world revolves around me. Like, people need to cry when I die, right? So uh, he gives the order to his, sis- his sister Salome and her, uh, her husband, and he says, okay, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to send a letter out, and they did this, and I want you to send a letter out to all the leading Jewish uh, men in the nation, and I want you to bring these top-level leaders and tell them they need to come to Jericho on pain of death. Don't tell them what this is about. Don't tell them I'm sick. Just tell them to come. And when they come, keep them in the area. And when I die, bring them into the Hippodrome, surround the place with soldiers, lock the doors, and then tell them I died. And when you tell them I die, then kill them. Because I want there to be weeping in the nation when I die. That is Herod the Great. And so today we're going to see that this account of the slaying of these these baby boys, it fits completely with what we know of Herod. He had taken out two of his sons, maybe three by this time. He'd taken out uh, brother-in-law. He'd taken out uncle. I mean, he'd taken out several relatives to protect his throne. And so today when when he realizes the Magi have not come back, they've not kept up their deal, he doesn't know if they found the kid or not, but he's not taking any chances. So he's going to go out, give the order, hey, kill every child two years old and young, every male child two years and old. And why? Because this is kind of gives approximates the time when, the, when they saw the star, which he's saying, okay, must, that's, that indicates the birth. So I don't know if the kid's there or not, but just to make sure anyone two years and younger, we're taking them out. And so let's see what happens. So chapter 2 and verse 13. So... When they had gone, the Magi, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph. So remember, Joseph's in a, Joseph and Mary are living in Bethlehem. So we're, we're way past Christmas, whenever Christmas was. Um, we're probably six months to two, year, two years later. We're not sure exactly how long. But uh, they're, they're in Bethlehem. They've resettled. They like the place. Like, no one knows their story, right? No one knows about her weird pregnancy. They just moved in the area. They moved, got a house with a cul-de-sac. Uh, they're the new kids. They're, they're enjoying life in Bethlehem. And so when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He says, you need to get up, take the child and his mother. I want you to escape to Egypt. Now, Egypt was the border 70 miles away. In Egypt, the capital of Egypt was Alexandria, second largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome. Huge Jewish population. We, our best hunch is that they went to live in Alexandria. We don't know that for sure. But uh, he says, you need to, to wake up, you need to take this child, you need to escape to Egypt. So 70 miles away, right? He says, uh, stay there until I tell you because Herod's going to be searching for the child to kill him. Now, just the name of Herod's going to send shivers through you. Like we know Herod right now. So uh, middle of the night, and so they're going to get up, and they're not going to have time to pack. Uh, they're not going to have time for, you know, hey, get, grab the gold, grab the frankincense, grab the myrrh, right? Pack them in some baggies. We need to hit the road. Hey, don't forget the kid. We're still getting used to having one. I'll talk about that more later. But uh, 
Anyway, we got to go. She's like, what? I'm just waking up here. It's like, no, 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 no. Don't make any noise. We don't want anyone to know we're leaving because we're in danger. We don't want anyone to know. In the morning, we want to sneak out because if, when, when Herod comes and people are asking, we don't want them to know that we're gone or that where we went. And so it's like an exciting scene from a movie, right? That under the cover of darkness, they're quietly got a picture of them coming out, looking both ways. Uh, let's be quiet. Let's just sneak out. We don't know if they still have the donkey or not, um, but they're just kind of sneaking out and on their way because they've got to get to Egypt before Herod realizes they're gone, and they've got to outrun his soldiers if they come after. And so this is a kind of very, you know, under the cover of darkness, sneaking off on their way. And remember, they don't know where they're going. There's no social media. You can't go on Hotwire and see if there's a hotel in Alexandria. I mean, you are, uh, you, you're in a dangerous spot. You don't know exactly where you're going. You may have relatives there, we may not, but no one knows you're coming. And so it's a scary time. And they're, they're heading off. So, so meanwhile, back at uh, Bethlehem, the camera switches. Uh, so, so meanwhile, uh, uh, in the middle of the night, they're, they're taken off in verse 14. Um, they're going to stay there to the death of Herod, as, which we know is 4 BC. Okay, and so now comes our first fulfillment. Remember I said there was three, our first fulfillment. And so what was fulfilled, uh, what the Lord had said through the prophet, this is from prophet Hosea, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So he says, they're going to go down to Egypt. They're going to be there until Herod dies. And then they're going to come back. And he says, this is a fulfillment of the scriptures that out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, the question is, what does Matthew mean when he says, this is a fulfillment? Like, you may think like, oh, what a a great prophecy looking forward like Bethlehem. No, it's not like that. So to understand this, we have to go back in time and reconstruct the history of Israel. We have to understand the history of Israel, and in what sense is this a fulfillment? And so if you were to go back in time, we're going to go back about uh, 1,400, 1,500 years to the time of the Exodus. God comes to Moses, I want you to go and free my people. Remember that. And so this is what he says to tell Pharaoh. There in your note sheet, In Exodus chapter 4, this is what God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh. He said, say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh, the Lord, remember all caps, this is what Yahweh says, Israel is my what? My firstborn son. Can we say it together? Israel is my firstborn son. Don't forget that. This is significant. Can you think of any other firstborn sons of God? Does that ring a bell? How about if I change the words? Only begotten son. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. This is no accident that Israel is called God's firstborn son. Just go tell him, hey, let go of my firstborn son that he can leave and come worship me. And so if we fast forward now 700 years in time, we come to the time of Hosea the prophet. And Hosea the prophet is looking back on the Exodus event, which, by the way, is the defining event in Israel's history. The Exodus was to Israel what the cross is to us. It was the defining event of their nation, ultimately constantly looking back to it. And so Hosea, God is speaking through Hosea, looking back at their history. And in Hosea 11.1, there it's on your note sheet, this is what? God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I what? I called my son. So catch this. 
Hosea is not predicting the coming of a Messiah in the future. Hosea is talking about an event in the past. He's looking back and saying, hey, this is what I said. Israel's my son, and out of Egypt I called my son. So the question is, what does Matthew mean now 700 years later when he said this fulfills that? It was not a prediction looking forward. It was a statement about the past. But here's what Matthew sees, inspired by the Holy Spirit, looking at the story of Israel and how Jesus fulfills the story of Israel. As he looks back, he sees a pattern. He sees that in the same way that the temple and the tabernacle were a picture of one day when Messiah would come to be the true temple of God, so in the same way that when God called his nation out of of Egypt, for a new life that was not just about them. It was a picture of one day when God would call his greater son to lead us into a greater promised land. Does that make sense? And so, so what this is, is what you see now is the Bible and the story the Bible is telling is so much bigger than we thought. It's not like, hey, God sets them free from Egypt and, well, now what am I going to do? He knows the end from the beginning like a great composer of a symphony who will, in the early movements, introduce a musical theme that will be brought to fruition at greater and louder and uh, more crescendo at the end, like a great author who will introduce certain literary themes early in a novel that will be brought to fulfillment at the end. So God is the architect of history, is working a pattern of salvation so that as he set his people free and brought his firstborn son out of Egypt, one day he would bring his greater son, Messiah, out of Egypt to lead us into a new promised land. You see, see where this is going. So this concept of fulfillment that Matthew is plugging into is much bigger and much more complex and much multi-layered than simply like born in Bethlehem. Right? And we're going to see three examples of that. So I wanted to take time because this is a big theme in Matthew, this fulfillment theme, and we'll see it again in a couple of weeks. Now, so we pick up the story. And uh, after they have uh, gone down to Egypt, so in verse uh, 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he is furious, and so he gives orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and his vicinity who are two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he learned from the Magi. And so here we come, fulfillment number two, and then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Okay, another fulfillment. This is from Jeremiah 31. This one's even more complex, right? And so here's the the, the fulfillment, Jeremiah 31. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel is weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, what is he talking about? Well, if you were to go back to Jeremiah 31, the nation of Israel has just been decimated. Babylon has come in in 587, wiped out the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, completely burned down the city, And the captives who are destined for slavery in Babylon have been staged for deportation a few miles outside the city at a place called Ramah. It's only a few miles from Bethlehem. And it was a time of great weeping and mourning for the nation. It was the low point in all their history. Now, where does Rachel fit into this? What's Jeremiah talking about? Rachel weeping. Well, Rachel was the favorite wife of Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to what? Israel. 
So Rachel is the mother of Israel. So she's lived hundreds of miles, you know, hundreds of years, or a thousand years before this event of the exile. But Jeremiah is using it, writing it in, a, in a, a metaphorical way, and he says, at this time of great tragedy, at the time of exile, Rachel is weeping for her children. But what's interesting, in Jeremiah 31, in the midst of this horrendous situation, are these most incredible prophecies that one day God will come and restore the nation and will bring a new covenant. What's also interesting is that Rachel was buried in Bethlehem. And so you have several layers of biblical story. And so what Matthew is saying is, I see the history of Israel being repeated again in the Messiah. In the same way that once at the lowest point of desolation and sorrow, you have this amazing promise of a time would come of a covenant when God would restore the covenant. And it was associated with, with Rachel, who is, who is from Bethlehem, so in this time of great decimation, these 15 or 20 kids, it would cause such turmoil and destruction. There's a picture of the oppression of Rome in ancient Israel. And that time of weeping, so there's a promise that this child who escaped will return and this, the new covenant will be brought into fruition. And so you can see there's a, there's a very complicated, multi-layered thing that how the story of Israel is being repeated and brought to fulfillment in Messiah. And so then we move on to the next one. And so um, after Herod dies, this is 4 BC, an angel of the Lord now appears to, to Joseph in Egypt. So remember, they've been living in Egypt, right? They're refugees. We don't know what their life was like, but we know they don't want to be in Egypt. And it's really tough to be in Egypt, right? There's no, you can't like FaceTime with the grandparents, you know, back in uh, Galilee or whatever. You can't uh, communicate with your friends. You're in a foreign land and you're just waiting. And so finally the word comes, hey, it's safe. The coast is clear. It's safe to come home. And so uh, it says, after Herod died, verse 19, an angel of the Lord appears in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, and he says, okay, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to, to take the child's life are, are, are dead. You know, coast is clear, you can go home. And so what we're going to see is that uh, Joseph and Mary apparently say, awesome, let's go back to Bethlehem. Uh, it doesn't tell us why, but if I'm them, I don't want to go back to Nazareth. That's where I thought I had sex outside my marriage. That's where they gave me the big A for my dress, you know? Like, I don't want to go back there, small town, 200, 500 people. I don't want to go. Let's go back to Bethlehem. Remember how nice it was there? We moved in. The neighbors brought casseroles. It was awesome. Remember the Magi came? Maybe they'll come back. We get some more gold. I mean, we love Bethlehem. Let's go back to Bethlehem. So everything suggests in the text that they're planning to go back to Bethlehem but once again, God's going to step in and say, no, you can't do Bethlehem. It's too dangerous. It's only five or six miles outside of Jerusalem, the capital. The new king is a son of Herod. His name is Archelaus. We know a lot about him from history. Also incredibly brutal. It's not safe to be back so close there. And so they're going to get redirected. They have to go back to Nazareth, which apparently wasn't where they wanted to go. It wasn't part of their plan. So let's see what happens. So... Uh, in verse 21, so he gets up, he takes the child and his mother, and they went to the land of Israel. Now, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he's afraid to go there, and he's warned in a dream again. And so he withdrew to the district of Galilee, which is in the north. We'll start having maps, by the way, in like a week or two. Um, and, uh, and so he went and, we, and lived in a town called Nazareth. We know this is where they were both from. And so was fulfilled. Here comes the last fulfillment, what was called uh, Seven the Prophets, 
that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, of all three fulfillments, this is the most complicated, right? So we don't have time to go into all the theories, but I want you to notice a couple things. In the previous two fulfillments, a specific passage of Scripture was, re was referred to. This fulfills Hosea 11. This fulfills Jeremiah 31. Notice here, nothing like that. It says this is what fulfilled in the prophets, a more wider spread, generic fulfillment. Um, and uh, we don't know exactly what Matthew's talking about because, uh, because there is no passage that says he's going to be from Nazareth. That's not what it's talking about. And so scholars have different theories on this. One of the intriguing ones is that there was a uh, famous prophecy about Messiah. We just looked at it a few weeks ago. Isaiah chapter 11, 1, that said, from the olive tree of, of, uh, of David's you know, family, from Jesse's family, that has been cut down. Um, notice from the Davidic dynasty that's been cut down, that a shoot will appear. And you may remember that. A shoot will appear from the root of, of, uh, of Jesse. And so we talked about olive trees and how they, they, they get killed, but still they, they'll come back to life. A shoot will come out, a new shoot. Um, and what's interesting, in the Hebrew, the word for shoot is netzer. Uh, and so there are, there, one of the theories is that David's family was originally from Bethlehem, but this, uh, there, there were some of his people that moved to Nazareth, kind of immigrated to Nazareth, started a new community, and they said they wanted people to know we're from the Davidic line. We're from Netzer. We're from Nazareth. And so that's like one of the theories, but we're not really sure. But the, the big picture you want to catch is that we are coming now at the end of chapter 2 to the end of the early years of Jesus. So here's what I want you to catch. What Matthew is trying to show is that Jesus of Nazareth uh, is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. He's the one that everything's leading up to. So it starts in chapter 1 with a genealogy showing he's from the right line. And then he moves into these five fulfillments, some literal some typological to show how Jesus of Nazareth fulfills the ancient prophecies about Messiah and how he fulfills the story of Messiah. Everything's leading up to his coming. And with that, we're going to leave Jesus's uh, early years. Next week, we'll pick up, uh, we get into chapter 3, uh, we'll come with the arrival of John the Baptist, this huge announcement that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the heavens, uh, that's been prophesied long since from Daniel and others, that one day God's going to break into human history and bring his kingdom with this announcement from John the Baptist, that time has come, and Jesus is now going to be 30 years old. So we're going to jump from, well, he's two or three or four here, we're going to jump ahead, next time we'll see him, he's going to be 30, but Matthew has laid his uh, kind of case one evidence for who Jesus is, all right? Now, in the time that we have today, um, I, I don't want to talk anymore about fulfillment because we've talked a lot about that in these opening weeks, right? What I want to do today is I want to focus in on one key character in this story that if, if this was a movie, we'd almost call him an extra. He would not be one of the headline, uh, kind of headline actors, and yet he plays a major part in the whole story. Without him, the story could never happen and of course, that is Joseph, or as he'd be known at the time, Joseph ben Jacob, the husband of Mary and the father, stepfather of Jesus. And uh, it seems clear as you study these opening chapters of Matthew that Matthew is laying out Joseph as a model to follow that uh, he is a picture of what a true Jew would look like. He's a picture of this is the kind of person that will follow Messiah when he comes. 
And so um, he's going to give us a picture of Joseph. And there's so many things we could talk about today. But as we, as we kick off this series in Matthew, in these early chapters, uh, I think that Joseph is a model for us as modern-day Christ followers. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And there's so many character qualities that we could highlight. Uh, for example, uh, we could talk about his humility. We saw it several times today. Um, we, over and over, Matthew refers to, uh, to the family as the mother and her child. Uh, Joseph is hardly even mentioned. Like the Magi show up, he says, and they came to see the mother and her child. Well, what about Joseph? What did he chop liver? It's like, you know, hey, we don't care about you. We're here, mother and child. Uh, so three times today, Matthew, the mother, hey, take the mother and her child. Why not take my wife and my kid, you know? Like, take the mother. No, it's not about this story. It's not about you. And yet, because it's not about him, and it's, this story needs to not be about him, he's going to serve incredibly. He's going to show this pattern of humility. I don't care if I get the credit. I just want to serve. Um, we could talk about his courage today. We're going to see his courage in the face of danger, protecting the child's life. We could talk about his compassion. We'll see that later. But we don't have time for all that. Those were all in the original drafts of this message. So what we have time for is kind of two key character qualities that I think are the most important for us as followers of Jesus to get at the beginning of the story, because this is where the story is going. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section called Joseph ben Jacob, a model to follow. And the first thing that, that Joseph models for us is what I'm calling radical obedience. If you want to understand Joseph, he is a man who loves God, who pursues God with his uh, whole heart, and when God says jump, he says how high on the way up. He is an incredible model. So when, when I say radical obedience, I want you to write two words down. Can you do this on your note sheet? When I say radical obedience, I mean extreme, and I mean instant. So we, we understand extreme sports, right? You know, extreme sports, well, I've done extreme obedience, like when God asks you to do something hard, Joseph's going to be a model that he not only says, yes, sir, but he does it immediately. He doesn't procrastinate. He doesn't wait. He doesn't uh, kind of put it off for a week. Let me think about this. He's a model of radical obedience. Now, this is how uh, Matthew introduces Joseph to us. Back in chapter 1, I put it on your note sheet. First time we meet him in Matthew, it says, Joseph, her husband, he was a what? Let's say it again. He was a righteous man. Okay, so, so Matthew introduced, he wants us to know, I'm about to introduce a character into this story. He's going to play an important part. And the first thing you know, he is a righteous man. He's a, guy, he's a man who's seeking God. And so what does it look like to be righteous? It looks like he's going to listen and follow. He's going to have this radical obedience. And so it goes on, and it says he didn't want to, uh, he was a righteous man. He didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, um, so he had a mind to divorce her. So in that day, when he finds out that Mary is pregnant, what a righteous man would do is divorce her. Because if your fiance comes up pregnant and you're not the father, you know it's not good. Huh? She has been unfaithful, and in that culture, this would be, horrendous. And so if you marry her, it looks like either you're admitting that you're the father or you're admitting she had sex with someone else while you were engaged. 
and you married her anyway. Either way, you are a top 10 loser, right? So, as a righteous man, that's what he's going to do. Notice he's got a couple options. We talked about that that week. He can take her to the temple and make a big deal and humiliate her, or he can do it quietly and privately in a private ceremony, just quickly divorce her with two male witnesses, right? He's going to choose the, the second route because he, he doesn't want to hurt her anymore. He just wants to do the right thing. And so he's all clear on this. If you remember back in that passage we went over, he's made up his mind. He's thought through the options. This is the only thing. This is the right thing to do. And, uh, and so he's made up his mind. And then all of a sudden, he gets the dream. And the angel comes and says, okay, uh, Joseph, you've been selected. Well, what do, we, what do you need, Lord? Well, we've got four things. You want to take some notes on these, four things. Uh, number one, you know the pregnant girl, your, your fiance? Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, we'd like you to marry her. What? That violates everything that I was raised with. You understand what's going to happen here if I marry her? We live in Nazareth. It's a small town. 200, 500 people. Any of you ever lived in a small town? Like, there's a reason you left, right? <laughs> like, in a small town, everyone knows everyone's business. When I'm, like, on a motorcycle trip, I just get my gas and keep moving. I'm afraid some story's going to develop while I'm there, right? I don't want to show up on Instagram, you know? Like, wild man comes through town, going too fast, police can't catch him. I don't want that story. I want to go incognito, right? So... So do you understand what it would be like for Joseph to marry the pregnant girl in a small town? Like his life, this stigma is going to follow them most likely the rest of their lives. So, hey, number one, marry the pregnant girl. Number two, adopt her son. I know he's not yours. Trust me, adopt him. Number three, I know in Jewish culture it's a huge honor for fathers to name the child. But, yeah, sorry, you don't get that. This, this is his name, Joshua. I know there's a kid in third grade, you couldn't stand named Joshua. But still, your kid's going to be named Jesus, Joshua. And number four, we, we need you to raise this kid, right? So that's your four assignment. Not an easy assignment. And yet I want you to notice how he responds. There in your note sheet. When Joseph, what are the next two words? When Joseph woke up. From this bad dream. No, when he woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home. He didn't go talk to his friends. He didn't ask his parents for advice. He didn't say, let me pray about this for a week. He didn't say, well, let me just think about this and consider my options. He listened and followed. Radical obedience. Story number one. We have two more stories. So we're going to fast forward in time now. Now they're in Bethlehem, right? we got the census thing going. He has to go to Bethlehem. They have a baby there. Uh, life's starting to turn around. I mean, uh, no, no one knows them maybe in Bethlehem. Maybe they don't know the story. We don't know all the details, but they're a long way from Nazareth. Maybe they have a new family in town. They, they've got the little condo in the cul-de-sac, right? People are coming over, bringing them dinner. This is great. They don't know how they got married. They don't know she was pregnant before they got married. And so they're just like a nice new family. Things are going well for them in Bethlehem. And then all of a sudden... Awesome, magi show up, right? Like the welcome committee. But they're bringing gold, bringing frankincense, bringing myrrh. You've just gone from poverty to wealth. This is awesome. Hey, maybe this is not so bad being the stepfather of the Messiah, right? This is going to work out. 
And then all of a sudden you get another dream. Oh, oi, Eve, these dreams, you're killing me. Well, what does they tell them this time? Oh, just want to give you a heads up. The worst guy in the world, you know, Hannibal Lictor, he's after your kid. So you need to pack up like right now. Why don't, like, don't wait till tomorrow. You need to pack up in the middle of that and you need to go. Oh, really? Now, yes, go. And so he's got to wake up. Hey, Mary, Mary, I had another dream. Another dream. Are you killing me? Yeah, yeah. We need to leave. Well, can I pack it? No, no, we can't. Just put the frankincense and myrrh in a baggie, right? Put it in a baggie. Get the gold. We're on the way. We still got the old donkey. He got us here. Let's get the donkey. We got to get going. We got to get to Egypt. We got to beat out Herod. We gotta keep it quiet. We have to sneak out of here. No, no. Oh, don't forget Jesus. Oh, my gosh. I'm sorry. Jesus. Uh, they're still getting used to Jesus. Yeah. By the way. This is having a child. I'm telling you, some of you have gone through this. Some of you will go through this, but uh, I'm telling you, there should be warning pack, like warning notices, right? I remember when our first daughter was born, like we get in the car, we go home, and then I'm kind of waiting, okay, so how long does this go on? Like, when does the help come? Some of your parents, you experience that, you go home, it's like excited, all of a sudden you realize that they're not leaving. 18, 24, 36 years. Some of them you throw away at 27, they come back at 32. You know, like, I, are you with me? It's like, I, I, I seriously, it's like, oh my gosh, we don't get a break. Like, this, this child is with it forever, right? Like, I remember, I remember coming, I driving up to get my wife. You know how they do that thing where they put your wife in a wheelchair because they don't want to get sued. And they, they bring her out to the car, she's got the baby. And I still remember the getting in and putting our daughter Alyssa in the car seat. And I'm thinking, like, this should be illegal. <laughs> they don't know us from Adam. We didn't have to go through any tests or checks. There's no security here. Like, are you really? Like, we're, you're trusting us with this life. So there's so many surprises, right? So they, they're, they're fairly new parents. Joseph, and they've got to, hey, don't forget Jesus. We got to go. And yet, I want you to see how Joseph responds to this dream in the middle of the night. In 124, when Joseph woke up, no, we already did that one. Uh, too, too, too far thing. So he got up, he takes the child and his mother during the night. Now, let me ask you if you had a dream like that in the middle of the night, do you think you might just sleep on it? And just kind of wait and see, like, hey, let me just see if I remember this in the morning. Like, do you ever have those dreams? Like, sometimes I'll have scary dreams in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden you start realizing, I think this is a dream. I'm just going to wait till the morning to deal with this. Like, maybe in the morning we'll just say, hey, I think it was the pizza. There wasn't really an angel. You know, but no, no, for Joseph, listen and follow. Boom, middle of the night. Catch it. Think what would have happened had he delayed. We may not be here today. Um, third example. They're now in Egypt, right? And so, you know, they're refugees in Egypt. It's probably not the best life. They're, they're probably, you know, wanting to go home. And finally the word comes. They have this 
dream again that they get to go home. But catch this, that they're heading out, apparently we read it, for Bethlehem. That's where they want to go. But then once again, they apparently they get warned off in another dream not to go to Bethlehem. Now I want you to think about it. We don't know. We're reading a little between the lines here. But it was, seems really clear they liked Bethlehem. They, were not, they didn't want to go back to Nazareth. Can you understand why? If we're, if, we're, if we're understanding the story right, everyone knew about the pregnancy. You got out of Nazareth. Do you want to go back to Nazareth? Small towns have long memories. Do you really want to go back? And yet, and yet this is your option. It's a place where we have connections. It's a place where we have relatives. And we can't go there. And so once again, the angel speaks. Joseph listens. Three times we see this. And here's what I want you to catch. I think Matthew is laying out this for us. He's laying this out for us. At the right to be, he's introducing us to this righteous man who is modeling for us what it looks like to be a follower of Messiah. The, the mark of a righteous man is he listens and follows, and not just when it's easy, but when it's hard. And he doesn't wait for next week. Then when God says jump, he asks how high on the way up. It is extreme obedience, and it is instant obedience. I love the way um, Tim Keller puts this in his book. He, he wrote a book about Christmas called Hidden Christmas, and he's describing, he's describing this first encounter that Joseph has with the angel about Emmanuel coming, you've been chosen. And he, he, does, he talks about what needs to happen in our life to have Emmanuel come and dwell with us. If you want the presence of God in your life, if you want Emmanuel to be born in your life, if you want the cloud to go with you in the day and the fire by night, what, what kind of person do you need to be in order to experience Emmanuel, God with us, in your life? And in that context, he says, when you come to Christ, you must drop your conditions. He's talking about Joseph. What does that mean? It means you give up the right to say, I will obey you if... Put a box around that. I'll obey you if. I'll do this if. As soon as you say, I will obey you if, it's not obedience at all. You're saying, you're my advisor, not my Lord. I'll be happy to take your recommendations. I might even do some of them. No, if you want Jesus with you, Emmanuel, you have to give up the right to self-determination. Let me tell you something. Right here in this room, there are many of you, you want to experience the presence of God in your life in a new way. You want to hear God's voice. You want to have an experience with Jesus that's real and alive and firsthand. You want to be used in God's kingdom. You want to have a life that matters, and you want the presence of God. And can I tell you something? What's holding you back is that you have not given up your right to yourself. You are still picking and choosing what you will obey and when you will obey it. And what we're learning here is if you want Emmanuel, if you want God with us, that we have to learn to come under the authority of the tabernacle. Remember in the Old Testament, when the cloud would move, the nation would move. And when the cloud would stop, the, angel, the, the, the nation would stop. 
And if you want to experience the presence of God in your life in a new and powerful way, I'm telling you, get on your knees and give up your right to yourself. Acknowledge the truth about your life. You don't belong to yourself anyway. If you think you do, you're wrong. You have been bought with a price. You no longer belong to yourself. And if you are not living in that reality, you are living a lie. And God is going to have to bring discipline into your life until you understand that. Because until we understand that, the presence and power of God cannot be revealed in our life. Because he can't reveal his power. He can't release his power until we're submitted. Because until then, if he released the power, we would screw things up. Nothing is more dangerous than a believer who has the power of God, but is not under the leadership of God. And so the first thing he models is radical obedience. Now, number two, the second thing he models, and I love this one, mm, and I'm going way too long, but that's the way it goes. Uh, the second one, second thing he models is patient waiting. And in many ways, this is the flip side of radical obedience. In fact, it's, it's just another form, but I want to call it out. And this is the one that, honestly, is just not so obvious. You know, we can go through, and once I say radical obedience, we can go through these three examples, and we can see exactly how he lives that out. Marry the woman. He get, wakes up, marries the woman. Go to, go to Egypt, wakes up, middle of the night. Don't go back to Bethlehem. We see, it's so easy, once I point it out, to see those examples of costly Instant obedience, but this one's harder to see, and yet it's equally as profound and often harder to practice, and it comes up in chapter 2 and verse 13, and so when they had gone, the Magi had gone, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph, he says, get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. We already talked about that, radical obedience, right? Stay there until I tell you, uh, for Herod's going to search for the child to kill him. So first step, listen and follow, radical obedience, we're moving but notice what he says. He says, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until what? Until I what? Let's say it together. Until I tell you. Stay there until you think it's a good time to leave. Stay there until you're sick of Egypt. Stay there until you think you have a better idea. No, stay there until I tell you. And catch this, men and women. This is one of the hardest lessons to learn about radical obedience. Yes, it's hard to listen and follow when the, when the price is high, the cost is high. We get that. But this may be even harder. This may be the harder part of learning how to listen and follow and to stay put until God tells you what the next step is. This is a hard thing. You know, years ago, I heard a message. It was a powerful message. I was a young man, so you know it was a long time ago. I was in my early 20s. I remember driving. I remember where I was. I was listening to a charismatic pastor from, uh, from the East Coast, from Florida. And he said, when God gives you a vision in your life, there is both a what to do and a when to do it. And both the what and the when are important. And if you have the right what at the wrong when, it will lead to disaster. One of the profoundest things I ever heard about vision. 
Now, I think about uh, Nehemiah, right? Think Nehemiah, that the report comes back that Jerusalem is in ruins, and his heart is grieved. He wants to do something, but what does he do? He goes to prayer and fasting for months before God opens the door. He had the right what? He had to wait for the right when. You think of David in the wilderness. He already knew God's calling. He'd been anointed by Samuel to be the next king. But he spends the next 15 years, much of it on the run from a crazy king. A couple times he has a chance to take out Saul. But he knows that's not part of the, part of the plan. And so he knew the what, but he had to wait for the right when. Abraham and Sarah, they knew the what. God had promised them that in spite of their old age and infertility, they would have a child. But they got impatient. And so Abraham says, hey, maybe this is what God had in mind. How about if I sleep with your handmaiden? And Hagar conceives and has a child named Ishmael. And the world in the Middle East is still at war to this day. See, the right what with the wrong when is disastrous. I'm telling you, Joseph and Mary are in Egypt. They're probably not loving Egypt. They want to go home. How many times do you think that Mary looked at Joseph across the, des- across the breakfast table as her son is in the high chair growing up, a long way from home and family, with no FaceTime, How many times do you think she looked at him and said, hey, any new dreams? (laughs) How many times do you think she said, now what did the angel say? He said, stay until I tell you. Are you sure you were asleep? Maybe he said, how many times do you think that, that, uh, that, that they had this conversation? Are you sure? Like maybe God just expects us to step out in faith. You know, I mean, it is his son. I'm sure he'll protect us. But with the angel, the last word of God to them was, stay there until I tell you. And men and women, there are many times in our lives when God has told us the what but not the when. And what he says is, wait until I tell you. And if we try to move ahead to create the right what, at the wrong win, it leads to disaster. So, so let me just get real practical here. Let me just give you some examples. I was just thinking of, of real-life type examples I could, I could think of. Uh, this may not be your example, but you'll get the idea. So let's say that you're single, right? You're single, you really want to get married, and you've prayed over this, and God continues to tell me, just trust me for my, my timing. But it's so hard, right, because you're just so lonely, and you're so frustrated, and it seems like he's not coming through. And so it's such a big temptation to lower your standards. And well, maybe they will come to Christ, or maybe they'll turn around, or maybe he's not perfect, but at least he's got a job. You know, whatever the thing is, he opens the doors, you know. Like, and God is saying, wait. Maybe you're a young couple and you've been trying for years to have to start a family. And I realize there are many ways that God can start families. And adoption may be exactly what God is saying to you. But let's say he's not, that you've been trying to have children and you can't have children. And you're like, God has promised you that he will provide that you're going to have children. And it's so tempting to say, we don't want to wait. We want to solve this another way. 
Some of you are in dead-end jobs. You hate your job. And you feel like God is asking you to wait. And all of a sudden, you get a job from a headhunter that's got this incredible job opportunity. It looks just perfect for you. But as you and your spouse, you pray about it, you feel like God is saying, wait. It is so hard. Some of you, you're in a health, you have a health situation that doesn't seem to be getting better. Maybe there's a ministry that you feel like God has called you to do, but he's not opening doors and he's telling you to wait. Maybe some of you, you're, you're a, a young couple or maybe a, a little older couple and you really want a house, right? And you've been praying about this and you've been saving money and you feel like God just telling you, wait, it's not time. And then all of a sudden, in the neighborhood that's your favorite, a house comes available. It's more than you can afford a little bit, but it's, it's, it's available and it's below market value and it would be a great deal. Or maybe you start thinking, well, maybe we should move to Palmdale. You know, it's like, we could still commute to church, you know, Rocky Peak, and maybe they could start, um, hey, maybe they could start a, a, a life group in Palmdale. Or we could do like a video cafe in Palmdale, right? And that, this is the way our minds work, don't they? The Lord tells us, I know you're in Egypt. I know you don't want to be here. I know it's painful, but stay until I tell you. And one of the marks of the radically obedient is that they learn to wait on God. And it's one of the hardest lessons of life. And when I say wait on God, I don't mean recliner. I don't know if you've been to ever to a really top-end restaurant. I've read about them. That's okay. Uh, but if you've ever been to a high-end restaurant, you have amazing waiters. You don't see them, but they're always there. The moment you put your fork down, they got another one. You know, your water's out, they're there. You don't see them. They're in the backdrop. They're like ninjas. <laughs> but somehow they know. And it's like you get done, you put your last bite, you, you're done, and boom. Would you like your plate removed, sir? Yes. You last drink a cup. Would you like a refill on your cup? What? Because they're waiting like this. Somewhere out of you, they're like this. <laughs> See, they're waiting on you. They're waiting, but it's not passive. Their eyes are locked on. Are you with me? This is what God calls us to be. If we want to be a people that moves with God, that experiences Emmanuel, the presence, there's a radical submission but there's also a sense, God, my eyes are on you. And I will wait. I will wait not just for the what, but I will wait for the when. And when you get the right what at the right when, oh, man, that's when things happen. And because Joseph was the right what and the right when, we're here today. Because he got it right, three things happened in his life. Number one, the Messiah was saved. Number two, he got to be the father of the Messiah, and raise the Messiah. And number three, because he listened and followed, catch this, the Messiah was born into the line of David. The Messiah was born in Bethlehem. The Messiah was the son called out of Egypt. The Messiah was raised as a Nazarene. In a way much bigger than Joseph could ever have understood at the time, 
he was not only living out the vision, God's vision for his life, he was experiencing being part of the greater story that God is telling. And I'm telling you, when you come to Jesus, God has a vision not just for your life. He's got a vision for the lives around you. He's got a vision for generations to come. We are called to play a bigger part in a larger story that, like Joseph, we may not know for a long time to come. But when we listen and when we follow, great things happen. And what we find is that God is in the waiting. Amen? Let's pray. God, we just want to learn how to listen and follow as a church. It's our passion. And so today you've given us an incredible model of a man who just loved you, a righteous man. And one of the things that made him righteous, he just knew how to listen and follow. When you'd speak, he would answer, even when it's hard, even when it's extreme, even when it required instant obedience, he was on it. And then when you said wait, he waited. And so when the, when the cloud moved, he moved. And when the cloud stayed still, he stayed still. He was a man whose will was surrendered to you, and it's this man you chose to raise your son. God, and right here at the beginning of the story, there's an incredible model of where we're going, that to be a follower of Jesus is to be a person of radical obedience, to be a person of tremendous surrender, a person who comes under your leadership of the true king, and because of that, will be filled not just with your presence, with your power, will carry out the story you've written for our life, the story that you've written for the larger story that we get to play an important part. We may not even see it until we get there. But God, we pray that we each play our part. Would you teach us how to listen and follow? And so God, as we worship you now, as we bring you our gifts, our offerings, we thank you that you are a God that's in the waiting. And while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, you may be here today, and you're in that place you're in that place where God has been speaking to you about an area of obedience and you have not been waking up and doing it. You've been putting it on hold. You've been pushing it out of your mind. Or maybe on the other side, God has been speaking to you and telling you to wait and you've been resisting or so tempted to get ahead. And whatever you're at, that during this last final time of worship, may this be a time you surrender to our true king and meet him in the waiting. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me?